0: Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is part three in our series on Italian French explorer Pierre Savignon de Brazza. Let us get going with a few notes. First thing, check out our website at explorerspodcast.com for more information on this series. You will find maps, photos, and other resources about our subject matter. You can also check out the show notes in your podcast app for this information as well. Second thing, while there are several ways to support the podcast financially, including merchandise in a Patreon program, one of the easiest things you can do is leave us a nice review wherever you get your podcasts, such as Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It doesn't cost you anything other than a minute or two of your time, and we appreciate the support. Third thing, I want to make a comment about our source material, and specifically the source material produced by the star of our series, Pierre Savignon de Brazza. Brazza is really a tale of two sources. First, there are his diaries, which he wrote in real time while in Africa. And second is what he would write later, after his return to France. Please know that you will find discrepancies between the two. The later writings tend to be more elaborate and colorful. The belief is that Braza wanted to make them a better read. He wanted to add zest and flavor to his experiences. He did this not only to justify what he had done, but to gain the support of the press, the public, and the French government. Does this mean that he was making stuff up after the fact? Or did he just not record those details the first time, due to a lack of time or energy? or was it a little both? Honestly, we just don't know, but I wanted to mention it. As with so much that we do here on this podcast, we have to look at all these sources critically, and understand the specifics are often up for debate. And that wraps up our notes. On with the show. Last time, we left Braza in France in 1879. He had returned after three and a half years of exploring the Ogaway River in Central Africa. The public and press loved the tall, handsome young man. The anti-slavery crowd lavished him with praise for his peaceful approach to exploration. The French government and business interests had deemed Braza's mission a success, and there was talk of sending him back to Africa, something Braza very much wanted to do. However, we should know that a return journey was not a given. Some people resented the 27-year-old Braza and the success he had experienced. Others questioned the value of what he had discovered. Also, Braza's old ally, Admiral Louis de Montignac, was no longer the Minister of the Navy. All this meant that Braza would have to court favor for a follow-up expedition. This meant politicians and key people in the business and military fields. To each, he stressed the opportunity that Central Africa held. In addition to prestige, there was ivory, minerals, hardwoods, and rubber. The latter item, rubber, would become an increasingly valuable commodity, especially after the introduction of the automobile. But all of that would be secondary, as the scramble for Africa was about to begin in earnest. This was the rush by European powers... To take control of African territories. And one of the most aggressive nations was Belgium, and specifically its ruler, King Leopold II. Now, we do need to take a bit of time and talk about King Leopold of Belgium, because he is a critical figure in Central Africa at this time. Leopold dreamed of an empire. He felt that colonies would give him, and Belgium, gravitas, money, and admiration. He tried to get the Philippines from Spain, and even poked around acquiring territory in South America. But those efforts were fruitless without lots and lots of money and resources, and most importantly, a willing partner. Thus, when Leopold saw reports from Henry Morton Stanley and other explorers about the unclaimed lands of Africa, he had a new idea. Make Africa his new colony. In 1876, Leopold organized a private holding company called the International African Association. It claimed to be a scientific and philanthropic organization devoted to such things as building hospitals, stamping out slavery, and expanding knowledge in Africa. It was, in reality, an organization controlled by Leopold, whose purpose was to create a new colonial state in Africa. Now, to accomplish this plan, Leopold turned to the man who arguably knew more about Central Africa than anyone, Welsh-American journalist and explorer Henry Morton Stanley. Stanley would be wooed by the Belgian monarch to come run his Congo operation. Stanley would have preferred to work for the British, but England had little need to expand its colonial holdings, and they made him no offer. He would ultimately sign on with Leopold for a salary of 1,000 pounds a year for five years. Whether he realized it or not, he had struck a deal with the devil. Stanley would head to Africa in late 1879. The purpose was to construct a series of trading stations along the Congo River and thus gain control over the entire region. The challenge was that the Congo River was not navigable for a long stretch. From its mouth on the Atlantic Ocean, a ship could go upriver about a 100 miles, but then you were stopped by a series of rapids and waterfalls. These rapids, today called Livingston Falls, go on for about 220 miles until they reach an area called Pool Malebo. This was also simply called the Pool, or Lake Nakunda. In colonial times, it was called Stanley Pool. Here, the waters flowing down the Congo pooled up and formed a great, calm lake. Stanley's job was to blaze a road parallel to the Congo for these 220 miles, thus establishing a continuous trade route up the river. It was not going to be easy, as much of the land was mountainous, meaning Stanley would have to be blasting his way upriver for long stretches. But once complete, the entire Congo Basin would be open for King Leopold to claim and exploit. Now, King Leopold is going to prove to be an absolutely despicable man. Stanley, however, is a mixed bag of a guy. While in Africa, he usually tried to negotiate with the native peoples, but he did not hesitate to use his firepower if he ran into a problem. On his cross-continent trek a few years earlier, he had reported more than thirty battles with the native peoples. Brazza's biographer Maria Petringa said this of Stanley: quote, "Stanley viewed Africa as uninhabited, as a vast vacant lot ready to be claimed by white entrepreneurs." End quote. This might be an overstatement, but not by much. I do want to point out that Brazza respected Stanley, calling him quote, "Africa's most intrepid explorer." End quote. So, with all of this in mind, Braza was able to tell essential parties that, hey, I have an alternate route around the rapids of the Lower Congo. That route, up the Ogaway, overland to the Alema, and down the Alema to the Congo. Problem solved. However, we have to beat Stanley and Leopold to the area if we want to make this route work. Thus, we have to move now. I want to point out that this was not Brazza's only argument for heading back to Africa. He stressed that a strong French presence would help fight the slave trade. And once safe and secure travel routes and settlements were established, missionaries could come to the region. It was all about bringing commerce, culture, Christianity, and civilization to the people of Africa. Now, Brazza understood that many people would want to exploit the Africans and their lands. However, he sincerely believed in this sort of colonial partnership. He felt that France could bring enlightenment, prosperity, and development to Africa. And he believed that these things should not happen at the end of a rifle or a whip. He argued for the use of diplomacy— Patience and cooperation with the native tribes, and at the same time respect their customs and cultures. So, it was the summer of 1878. Brazza was still suffering from liver issues as well as bronchitis, problems he would never fully recover from. Still, he was getting better even as he worked to gain approval for his next expedition. But it was at this time that Brazza would receive a very interesting offer from none other than King Leopold II of Belgium. In August, Brazza would visit Leopold and be offered a job. That job would be to go back to Africa for the International African Association. Do so, Leopold said, and we'll all make a lot of money. And with this, Braza quickly understood Leopold's true intentions. He saw that the International African Association, despite all that it claimed, was nothing more than a vehicle for Leopold to claim and exploit Africa. Brazza would turn down the offer, saying he was already committed to France. The Belgian king was stunned by the rejection. He was offering Braza a fortune. Who turns down that kind of money? The truth is that Braza, unlike Stanley, did not need or crave the money or attention or validation. He was born to a rich, noble family, and frankly, what Leopold offered just didn't matter to the man. If the offer did anything for Brazza, it allowed him to fully understand the ambitions of Leopold, and he was determined to counter them. A short while later, the French government would approve Braza's expedition. They set aside 100,000 francs for the mission. Another 50,000 francs would be granted by the International African Association. Yes, that was Leopold's group. It seems the Belgian king had not quite given up on recruiting Braza to his cause, or at least meddling in Braza's undertakings. Braza would depart for Africa on December 27, 1879. On his staff, there were two mechanical engineers. One was named Joseph Michaud, and the second is only identified by his last name, Nogues. So I will just call him Monsieur Nogues. Dr. Noel Ballet, who was on Braza's first expedition, was scheduled to follow in about six months. Braza's official mission was to conduct topographical research in the region and build a couple of hospitals-slash-trade stations, one on the Ogoe and another on the Congo, but he had a couple of other very specific goals. One, he wanted to reach the Malabo Pool and put a claim on the north side of the bank of the Congo River for France. And two, he had hatched an ambitious plan to haul sections of a steamboat up the Ogoway, then overland to the Alima, and down to the Congo, there, the ship would be reassembled, giving Brazza and France the first working steamship on the Congo River above Livingston Falls. The steamship was being packed up and would come to Libreville with Dr. Ballet. It was a bold idea, if it could be accomplished. Brazza would reach Senegal in January of 1880. There, he would bring on board ten marines and a corporal. The corporal's name was Malamine Kamara, and he will be important to our story. Malamine spoke French, as well as several African languages, and he was an expert shot he will prove to be one of Braza's most loyal and capable comrades. Brazza's return to Libreville would be cause for celebration for many. Some slaves he had freed had settled there, and a few would be hired as interpreters and porters. Remembering all the problems he had had in his last expedition, Brazza was determined to only hire porters who would agree to come with him for the full length of his journey. He did not want to go through the process of finding porters whenever he came to a new territory. Also, unlike last time, Brazza was going to travel light. In Libreville, he bought some dugout canoes, food supplies, medicine, and a limited number of trade goods, but nowhere near the amount that he had on its previous expedition. The truth is, he just didn't need to overload the expedition with trade goods as he had already established his relationships with the chief along the Ogilway. In March 1880, the expedition would load up everything on a steamship and head down the African coast and up the Ogilway River. At Lamberini, Braz and his men would take to the canoes and proceed upriver. As Brazza went inland, he was welcomed by the people and the chiefs along the river. They had not forgotten the father of slaves, and the people had fond memories of his visits. Thus, Brazza would move quickly, going from Lamberini to Lope to the Duma Falls and on to the confluence of the Ogowe and Pasa rivers. This was where, on the previous expedition, he had abandoned the river and struck out overland to the east. Here, at the confluence of the two rivers, Brazza elected to build the first French scientific and medical station— The area was good for crops, and the local Bateki people were friendly. For the name, he selected Francheville, which comes from the word affranchi, which is French for freed, and ville for city, thus city of the freed. However, the outpost quickly became called Franceville, or Franceville, for us cloudy Midwesterners, meaning city of the French. Not exactly what Brazza had in mind. No matter, the settlement was established on June 13, 1880, Raza would mark the occasion by raising the French flag and making the following speech In the name of France, here I plant our flag. Vive la France, vive la République. May God protect Francheville, the first French station founded in West Central Africa. The settlement offered a lot to the locals. First, it would be a key trading post. Second, it would have a hospital. Third, it would bring the protection of the white men. And fourth, it would be a haven for runaway slaves. With this first outpost established, Braza pushed forward with his plans. He left Monsieur Noguez in charge of Francheville and would send Joseph Michaud back to Libreville. Michaud was to meet Dr. Ballet and the steamship parts and escort them back upriver. Meanwhile, Brazza would head southeast, exploring, with Corporal Malamain, five marines, and a dozen porters. They would also take with them Oziah, their best interpreter. Brazza would follow the playbook from his previous expedition and go to the alima River but the river was still ruled by the hostile Bobangi tribe. Thus, Braza would only follow it for a short way before moving to a different river, the Lafini, which was also a tributary of the Congo. The Lafini river was controlled by a Bateki chief named Makoko, reputed to be the most powerful ruler in the Congo Basin. Once on the Lafini, it would not take long for Braza to be greeted by an emissary of Makoko. The man said that the king had heard of Braza, the white chief of the Ogaway, and he was there to guide him to meet Makoko. The emissary would lead Braza and his party overland for several days. For a while, Braza would harbor concerns that he and his men were being led into a trap. But those concerns were unfounded, and he would eventually be brought to the great water. And thus, by the light of the moon, Braza would get his first glimpse of the mighty Congo River. He said that, upon seeing it, there was a, quote, religious silence, end quote. This was the great Congo River, the waterway into the heart of the African continent, it was 3,000 miles long and up to 8 miles wide. It is the second-longest river in Africa, as well as the second-largest river in the world by discharge volume, following only the Amazon. It is also the world's deepest river. On August 28, 1880, the expedition would arrive at Embi, the seat of power for Makoko, the Bateki King. To meet the king, Braza put on its best uniform, while his marines cleaned and polished their weapons and gear, to give the best impression possible to Makoko. When they went to greet the king, Braza's men marched with their barrels of their guns pointed downward, as that was the local custom, to indicate you did not have hostile intentions. I love this small point. It was a simple thing, but it demonstrates how Brazza listened and learned from those around him. He understood that he needed to make a favorable impression. Also, he was not so proud that he refused to adjust to the local customs. Another man may have refused such a thing, saying it was not proper military etiquette. But to Braza, that was secondary. He was looking at the big picture. So, Raza would be taken to the court of Makoko. There, the king sat on a throne covered in lion skins. He was surrounded by his wives and children, and he wore a metal collar with 12 symbols, each representing the 12 provinces of his realm. Makoko's dynasty reportedly dated back to before the arrival of the Portuguese in the 15th century. He was probably the most powerful ruler in Central Africa. Raza would be the first white man he had ever met. Now, when I say 12 realms... It's not like Makoko had absolute rule over all these places. It was more like he was the head of a loose confederation of tribes. He was the nominal big guy of the region, there to provide advice and guidance and settle disputes, that sort of thing. His word was very important, but it was not absolute. Now, Makoko expressed his concern to Braza about the man called Bula Matari, the Breaker of Rocks, who was making his way up the Congo. This was a reference to Henry Morton Stanley, who was using dynamite to blast a road through the mountains. Makoko probably understood that, whether he liked it or not, the white men were coming, and he needed to figure out how to deal with them all. Well, in typical Braza fashion, he would spend two weeks in Enby, getting to know Makoko, speaking to the king and his ministers, and generally just listening and learning. Braza would then propose a treaty with the king. It would put Makoko's lands under the protection of France. In exchange, the French would get the right to build a settlement on the Congo, as well as another on the Alima River, as part of a trade network. As for Makoko, he probably looked at his options, Braza or Stanley, and threw his lot with the one that he felt was best for him and his people. And that was Braza. Stanley already had a reputation for being aggressive, even violent, and Braza played that image up to Makoko. He said, be a partner with France, or be ruled by men like Stanley. Presented like that, it makes for an easy decision. A treaty would be signed on September 10, 1880. One of the copies of the treaty was put in a box, and then a shaman sprinkled some earth into the same box. He then told Braza to take it to the great chief of white men because, quote, it will remind him that we belong to him, end quote. So, with the treaty concluded, Braza would now do two things. First, through King Makoko, he would set up a meeting with the Bobangi, who controlled the Elima River. The Bobangi were allies of Makoko, and the king, Braza hoped, would use his influence to strike some kind of deal. These negotiations would be difficult. Braza claimed that when Stanley and his expedition had come through several years earlier, Their aggressive actions had made many of the natives, such as the Bobangi, distrustful of the white men. Braza would assuage the concerns of the Bobangi, saying he was not like Stanley. He only wanted peace and trade, nothing more. In the end, an agreement was forged. The second thing that Braza did was to travel down the Congo in search of a place to build his second settlement. He would find it when he reached Pumalebo, the immense lake found just before the rapids of the lower Congo River. The pool, as it was often just called, was perfect. Brazza found a spot that was strategically located on a slightly elevated plain on the northern bank. There was already a small village there called Natoma. The treaty gave Brazza control of the riverbank 10 miles in all directions. The French flag would be raised at the location on October 3, 1880. Brazza must have looked back with satisfaction at what he had done. In just a few months, he had traveled hundreds of miles up the Ogoway, reached the fabled Congo River, and struck a deal with the most powerful chief in Central Africa – essentially giving France control of the northern side of the Congo River. He had also established two outposts, including one at a strategic spot on the Congo. His trade network was now established, and he had done it without resorting to violence or threats. Brazza would leave the outpost at Natamo in the capable hands of, now sergeant, Malamine Kamara, and a few marines. He would then continue down the Congo. His intention was to reach the Atlantic, and then travel up to Libreville, and then go back to Europe. Now, as Brazza was going down the Congo, it was inevitable that he would run into anyone who was coming up the Congo, and that included Henry Morton Stanley. The two men would meet at the village of Matadi on November 7th. Now, I want to mention that while Stanley knew that Brazza was out there, he really didn't consider Brazza that big of a deal, despite being urged by King Leopold to beat the French officer up to the pool. Stanley just didn't see how a single man and a handful of native troops could really do anything of note. A group that small and inconsequential wasn't going to establish any outposts or sign any treaties, or so he thought. So, the meeting between Brazza and Stanley would go as well as could be expected. Brazza's bad English and Stanley's limited French and Italian prevented the two men from having any meaningful conversation. Brazza would tell Stanley about his new outpost at the pool, which surprised the man, but Brazza did not tell Stanley about the treaty he had signed with Makoko. That would be a fun little surprise. Later, when Stanley realized what Braza had done, he would say, quote, I did not appreciate rightly the position of this gentleman, end quote. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brazo would continue down the Congo and reach Libreville on December 15th. He was exhausted and had lost a lot of weight. His bronchitis and liver problems were as bad as ever. He had wanted to return to France at this point, only there were some big problems. First, only 20,000 of the expedition's 150,000 francs had actually been put into an account. This meant expected supplies had not been sent up the Way. Second, Dr. Ballet had not yet reached Libreville. He had been expected in June, along with the steamship parts, the ones that Braza wanted to haul to the Congo River. However, there had been problems with the ship's design, and its delivery was delayed. This was bad news for Braza. His men were counting on the supplies, and nothing was getting to them. Thus, he would cancel his plans to return to France and deliver all the provisions himself. Using his own funds, he bought food and construction materials, hired carpenters and other tradesmen, all within a day of arriving at Libreville. Soon, he would be heading back up the Ogo Way. Brazza would pick up Joseph Michaud in Lamborghini on the trip up river. However, the journey would be marred by the capsizing of one of the boats. Brazza would sustain an injury to his foot, which would become infected. Without a doctor, he would be forced to cut away the infected flesh himself. And then, to top it all off, dysentery struck, further hobbling Brazza and some of the men. Still, the relief group would make good time up the river and reach Francheville in February. The little outpost was in good shape. Monsieur Noguez had maintained excellent relations with the local people, and the harvest was good, meaning the station was self-sufficient when it came to feeding everyone. Braza would settle in at the outpost and spend a few months recovering from his various illnesses and injuries, all the while sending reports back to France updating its progress, and asking for supplies and men to complete his mission. Now, I want to leave Braza for a moment and go back to the settlement on the Congo, the one where Braza had left Malamin Kamara in command at the pool. The sergeant had become a respected man at the outpost of Natamo. He was fair and even-handed, and he proved to be an outstanding hunter, providing game for him and his men, as well as the village. The locals liked and trusted him. Well, the inevitable would happen when Henry Morton Stanley would come to the fledgling outpost. Stanley's road-building project was being dogged by illness, but he slowly but surely pushed onward. Well, in July of 1881, Stanley, backed by 70 armed native troops, arrived at the pool. He would promptly go to the French station. Stanley's plan was to intimidate the small French force, which was only three or four men, but Stanley was not prepared for the resolve of Malamine Camara. The Senegalese sergeant was cordial to Stanley, but insisted that Brazza and France had rightful possession of the land that they had started to build their station. He then produced the treaty that Brazza had signed with Makoko. This would upset Stanley, as he now realized that Braza had pulled a fast one on him. However, Stanley would not press the issue with Malamine. He wisely figured it was not his job to deal with such things. Violence could only cause an international incident, which Stanley had no desire to trigger. Thus, he would leave Malamine in control of the outpost, for now. Stanley would turn to the local chiefs to try and undermine the French treaty, but he would have little luck. However, he would go and visit Makoko, who would grant him the right to build a settlement on the south side of the Congo. This would, essentially, become the historic boundaries for the French and Belgian Congo colonies. So, with Malamine holding down the fort, literally, at the pool, Let's jump back to Brazza at Francheville. Here, Brazza would greet the first Europeans to arrive in the region, missionaries. Brazza had actually requested the missionaries, despite not being a religious man. He saw them as bringers not just of Christianity, but European enlightenment, knowledge, and medicine. Also, September of 1881 would bring the arrival of Lieutenant Louis Mison at Francheville. The man would report that Ballet was in Libreville, but unfortunately, the steamboat he had brought had proven to be defective, and was unusable this would end braza's dream of floating a steamship on the upper congo but above all mizon was there to relieve braza who was officially recalled to france thus braza who was relatively healthy passed control of the mission to mizon in the fall of 1881 braza would conclude his second stint in africa by exploring south tracing the Ogaway to its source and then crossing over to the congo because of his good relations with the bateki people braza was also shown an additional route to the atlantic coast This was by following the Niari and Koyu Rivers. The combined rivers are often called the Quilla River, or the Niari-Koyu River. This river system was about 100 miles from the pool, meaning there was a potential trade route by going overland from the pool to the Niari and Koyu Rivers and onto the Atlantic. This avoided the lower Congo River, making it an alternative route that Braza could bring back to his supporters in France. Brazza would finish his exploring and head back to the coast and then up to Libreville, there, he would receive some bad news. Monsieur Nouguez had developed a fever at Francheville, and had died. Also, the new commander, Mison, was proving to be a bit of a problem. He had recalled Sergeant Malamine from the outpost at the pool, making the French hold on the settlement even more tenuous than before. And on the Elima River, Mison had gotten into some fights with the Bobangi, meaning the treaty Braz had forged with them was in jeopardy. Mison, by the way, was actually in the pay of the International African Association, the organization that was King Leopold's front. So that he was undermining the work done by Brazza is not a surprise. In fact, Braza's recall to France may have been as a result of Leopold's campaign to get Braza out of the way. By the way, in Francheville, the locals would come to despise Mizon. His nickname would be, Commandant get the hell out of here, as that was his favorite saying. So Braza would finally sail back to Europe on an English mail ship, along with his engineer, Joseph Michaud. They would arrive in Portsmouth, England, in early June 1882. When he would reach Paris, Braza would again be hailed as a hero. The fact is, Africa was growing more important in the eyes and minds of the world. In France, the Congo region was now seen as a potential financial windfall, and the scientific and intellectual communities warmly embraced all the new and fascinating data and knowledge that Brazza had brought back with him. And we can't forget the anti-slavery crowd, and the missionaries. It was Europe's duty to stamp out the evils of slavery and bring Christianity to the people of Africa. Braza had done all that in their eyes. The Paris Geographical Society would hold a big gala in honor of Braza. There, they announced the new French settlement on the Congo would be officially called Brazzaville. The public loved the handsome young explorer. However, not everyone agreed with that assessment. King Leopold of Belgium worked to thwart Braza every chance that he got and there were elements within the French government that were wary of what Brazza had done. And that leads us to the treaty that Braza had struck with King Makoko. It still had to be ratified by the French legislature. Some people said it was unwise to get entangled in the affairs of Africa. By ratifying the treaty, the lands north of the Congo were essentially under the protection of France. Was the nation prepared to defend those claims? Was it worth such an obligation? So, while all of this was debated, there was an event that I want to share with you. In the fall of eighteen eighty two Henry Morton Stanley would return from the Congo on October eighteenth. A banquet would be held in Paris in the man's honor, and Brazza was invited. The affair would take an ugly turn when Stanley, whom many accused of being drunk, assailed Brazza and his accomplishments. He insinuated that Brazza was a fraud and had tricked Makoko into signing the treaty. He then called him a quote, shoeless, poorly dressed man. End quote. It was frankly a sad and petty attack, and it left the audience gasping in disbelief. In response, Brazza would calmly request permission to speak. He then went on to say that he in no way saw Stanley as an opponent, but instead he saw them as laborers in the same field, who shared the common goal of progress in Africa. He then offered up a toast to the efforts of all nations. Brazza would top it all off by turning to Stanley and saying, I hear that I have been attacked this evening. All I offer in return is this. He then reached out and shook Stanley's hand. The French papers and the public ate it up. They heaped praise on the artful young man and called him the peaceful conqueror, contrasting him to the ruthless Stanley, who left a trail of blood and bodies wherever he went. By the way, Stanley greatly resented assertions that he was this bloodthirsty guy who slaughtered the African people at every turn. The press lobbed that accusation at him time and time again, and even Braza perpetuated the notion. In Stanley's defense, the caricature was overblown. He was not some mindless killer, but know that there were elements of truth to it. A month later, the French legislator would meet to debate and vote on the treaty Brazza had signed with King Makoko. As I said, there were many efforts to derail the thing, but nothing would outweigh the influence of the press regarding the subject. They loved Brazza, who they saw as a proper Frenchman, even if he was Italian. He was sophisticated and charming, and his approach to exploration was more civilized compared to crewmen such as Stanley. One newspaper would write this about Brazza: "Without money, without military force." With only the prestige of his moral and intellectual superiority, Mr. Brazza worked wonders. He smashed the barriers of free trade, nearly abolished the slave trade, recruited up to 2,000 canoe paddlers, traced a 120-kilometer road, and was welcomed as a messenger of peace and prosperity." Brazza's popularity soared in France, and public support for his treaty with it. The treaty would be approved by the National Assembly by a vote of 441 to 3. It would pass in the Senate unanimously and become law on November 30th, 1882. And that is pretty much how France added a huge section of Africa to their colonial portfolio. And all of it because of Pierre Savignon de Braza. So, Braza was a famous man in France. There was even merchandise with his name and image on it. Soap, postcards, pens, that sort of stuff. But probably the most famous thing were Braza's cigarettes. Braza was a heavy smoker, and his cigarettes were the cool smokes of the time. The brand would continue to be made for decades after the man's death. So, it was late 1882, and things were looking pretty good for Braza. He had been a success. He had mapped the Ogaway, reached the Congo, established two outposts, gotten the most powerful chief of Central Africa to sign a treaty with France, and then got the treaty ratified back in Paris. And best of all, he had thwarted many of the plans of the evil King Leopold. And King Leopold, by the way, is pretty evil, so I think we can give him the moniker, even if it sounds kind of childish. So next time, we will wrap up the story of Pierre Savignon de Braza. There will not be a ton of exploration, but the scramble for Africa will continue, and Braza will go back to consolidate his work. We will conclude with Braza's final stint in Africa, a humanitarian investigation into the abuses of the native peoples. It is an investigation that will, perhaps, lead to his murder. So that is it for today. I hope you've enjoyed our story. Please take care, and I will see you next time for the conclusion of Pierre Savignon de Braza and the exploration of Africa. Thank you again for listening. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, You can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.